Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight we have Maze. Hello. And we've got Dan. Hey, hey. And I'm Vanessa, and we are only two days away from another epic radiothon. We're super excited. We're feeling it in the air. How are you this evening? You too? I'm, 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 I'm excited about Radiothon because I'm, I'm lucky enough to be the one in the studio tonight, and there is Radiothon stuff everywhere, and I love Radiothon. Oh. It's like my favourite. It's like Christmas for me. It is. It is. It's, it's, it's a and, time to reflect and reconnect. And, oh, it's, and it's so very good. important this year, more than ever. It certainly yes. is. All right, tonight on the show, did you know that an Australian university has released a world's first undergraduate degree in quantum engineering? I didn't. That sounds <laughs> pretty cool. It sounds pretty amazing, right? What a great time to be heading into tertiary education, despite all of the other things going on. Yes. And I'll have some supercomputers to, to do their courses on. Well, maybe they will. I bet they will. Um, and a few weeks back, we explored the new consumer data right, which has paved the way for open banking. So later in the show, we'll hear how the legislation affects the real banking products available to Aussies with the co-founder of UpBank. So that will be really interesting. And um, I'm hoping we'll demystify some of the complex, like, you know, financial instruments that get a bit beyond me. Mm. Uh, yeah. So there was, there's a lot of ACCC-related content this evening. Um, we thought we'd kick off with some news. Uh, so news at the moment, Google is uh, lobbying the ACCC. Why is it so? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if um, you guys have noticed in your, you know, daily perusals of Google or YouTube, um, they've been yes, putting up fully. Uh, little pop-ups, basically saying something along the lines of the government is going to force you to, uh, you know, I think, ruin your Google and YouTube experiences. And, uh, exactly. Yeah, they're yeah. little scare tactics, aren't they? Yeah. They're quite intrusive. It's, it's, it's kind of similar to when they brought in that mining resources rent tax about 10 or 12 years ago and all the mining companies started advertising about how it was going to ruin the world. And then people and it, bought that crap. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's all been prompted because um, our Australian news outlets are going to be negotiating payments with major digital platforms because of the impact of um, of them on revenue and the way that you know it makes their news findable or not, and all sorts of ways that news and these platforms, these social media platforms and search platforms interact. So there's a draft mandatory code released by the ACCC on the 31st of July that you can go check out. It's aimed at addressing the bargaining power imbalances between our news businesses and Google and Facebook. And there'll be an, a binding final offer arbitration process that's coming up. And that's what all of this pop-up lobbying business is about. Now, if the news businesses and the digital platforms cannot strike a deal through the three months of negotiation and mediation process, then an independent arbitrator would have the power to choose which final offer is the most reasonable within a further 45 business days. So we'll actually see outcomes of this in the mm. next few months. Mm. Um, you know, in the, I guess over four, five, even six months will be the point when we, we get a final view of this. And um, 
Google's open letter that it draws people's attention to with those pop-ups contains significant misinformation. So the ACCC has released a response to that lobbying tactic. Mm. Yeah. So it sort of specifies that Google will not be required to charge Australians for the use of its free services, such as Google Search and YouTube, unless it chooses to do so. So that that threatening tactic is, um, yeah. is misinformation. And that they will not be, Google will not be required to share any additional user data with Australian news businesses unless it chooses to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Google are playing from their standard playbook of, you know, throwing muck as far as they can and and taking no responsibility for anything. Um, You know, how, how much tax do they pay in Australia now? None. That's it. None. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like uh, it's, you know, it, it's all very well and good for them to be harvesting our, you know, searches and data and, and feeding us back creepy ads in the, you know, guise of trying to help us find things we want when in fact all we all it's really doing is weirding us out by the fact that they, you know, are listening to us talk about something that we might want to buy. Um, and then they have the gall to say that we are going to have to pay for that service when in fact they're not going to. So, um... We're we're, well, we're we're at a special time of day, so I'm not going to swear, but Google can do something to themselves, <laughs> in my opinion. And I'm sure yeah. they will. Yeah. Well, anyone who, who wants to find out more should really go to the media releases section of the ACCC website. It's very... Um, it's written in very plain English and very easy to unpack. But also you've got to think they're at the start of a negotiating position. When I've read analysis of where the ACCC is coming at it from, um, some people have said, look, it sounds like it might be too big a claim. It's like, but that's probably the point you want to start negotiating from mm. um, because that's where your, your competitors will be starting from. Definitely. All right. What else is, what else is happening in the news world, people? Well, the big part for me as as someone who works in VR, Oculus is now requiring a Facebook account for when you when you put on a headset or when you start developing for it, um, which is something that we all really saw coming. You know, as soon as Facebook bought Oculus, even though Palmer Lucky and he now defends himself, if he said this this will never happen. You never have to um, have an account with Facebook and give away all your privacy to this you know, huge corporation. Um, And he says in reply to these criticisms that, you know, those with more life experience were already telling him this and and that he tried as hard as he could, but, you know, screw him. Anyway... um, Um, it's a real shame, isn't it? It it, um, it locks certain people out of using that device, and um, absolutely locks people thirteen years old and younger out mm. of using it. If you follow the the Facebook rules, well, that, isn't that interesting? Like, it's already um, recommended that kids ten years and younger don't use VR because we don't know what it does to their eyes yet. Anyway. Um, And then I think, you know, this tech that scans your surroundings and everything already, uh, apart from Facebook, um, Oculus has already gone through these reports of scanning people's rooms during testing and then those images being used internally, like the... The security. Oh, uh, I just know like every time I take a photo with Pokemon Go that they're like, oh. hmm, let's analyse Vanessa's couch situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the amount well, of information, it's super creepy. Very much Absolutely. so. Absolutely. And you, there's, there's a lot of different uh, VR applications and some of them you really do want to be private. Um, 
But, yeah, I also I wanted to highlight that under the announcement on Twitter, my own boss, um, who's part of just an independent game audio studio, uh, had, the, had the most liked tweet, almost more likes than the announcement itself, saying that um, he wouldn't buy any more Oculus gear moving forward as he doesn't want to require any employees to have Facebook accounts. And as someone who doesn't have a Facebook account, um, you know, Great, thank God. It's so interesting, right? Because the the business decision is clearly not actually in Oculus's interests, but it is in Facebook's interests, and that is the, you know, that is the owning party. So it, it makes complete sense. Mm. Absolutely. You think about all of these developers who are, you know, very tech minded, very already, you know, therefore probably savvy with security and having thoughts and feelings about it. Um, yeah, Facebook taking over. <sighs> Which brings us to our next piece of news which is um, something that we kind of knew was coming. Uh, Facebook being the owner also of Instagram and WhatsApp, as well as, you know, all of your data and Oculus, um, have decided that it now is the time after talking about it for a while to start integrating the messaging services uh, associated with those uh, particular platforms. So uh, in the US, uh, users of Instagram have perhaps started seeing um, messenger icons replacing the little paper aeroplane that you get when you send private messages. And I imagine that we'll probably see something similar in coming weeks and months. Um, they are saying that they want end-to-end uh, encryption, like based on the WhatsApp platform, um, applied to all those services. Um, but whether that is how it actually turns out, well, I suppose we're yet to see. Um, it's, I guess, I guess, just you know, one one step towards the kind of homogenization of all of the all of the Facebook uh, offerings. You know, they'll probably still have their independent brands, but over, over time I think it'll all just become part of Facebook or maybe they'll create a yeah. new entity that will be all of them under one umbrella. Who knows what's going to yeah. happen? And so significant for them um, taking it to Apple and trying to compete on the security of their um, messaging services. Mm, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, so that's one of Apple's hugest things, right? And and as has been covered a little bit before, as Apple is trying to get other companies away and trying to sort of tout themselves as more secure, you know, we've got Epic and Fortnite thing happening now. Um, all of these huge corporations all fighting for our money and our data. So it's just another day in paradise then? Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um it should be. I'm not sure if Facebook is still planning on having all this done by the end of this year, um, based on you know all the various bits and pieces that have happened that aren't really uh, in our control. But that seems to be the aim is to kind of have this integration done by the end of 2020. Excellent. So we'll well, see. that's that's the news for tonight. <laughs> There's a little bit more we'll probably get to later, but we do want to get to some interviews. So we'll be chatting with Professor Andrea Morello from the University of New South Wales about their Bachelor of Quantum Engineering. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hey, um, welcome back to Triple R. You're with Bite Into It. Maze, Dan, and Vanessa with you this evening. So, the University of New South Wales has introduced the world's first undergraduate degree in quantum engineering. The Bachelor of Quantum Engineering, and uh, including the potential to do honours, will train students in advanced electronics and telecommunication engineering, specialising in how to design and control complex quantum systems. What does all of this mean? Well, Professor Andrea Morello joins us to tell us all about it. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for having, uh, joining us, Andrea. So did you want to start out with, I suppose, 
what the the scope of the quantum engineering bachelor's degree is uh, going to kind of involve? Well, so the quantum engineering bachelor is deeply grounded in our traditional electrical engineering degree, which is, of course, has been going on everywhere in the world and at UNSW for many, many decades. Uh, but we give it a more modern twist. So I like to describe quantum engineering as the microelectronics and microwave engineering for the 21st century. So the degree includes all the core engineering courses, which are physics, mathematics, plus electronics, design, microelectronics, digital design, control systems, all the things that an electrical engineer needs to know. And then it gives a modern twist, teaching the students how to understand, design, and operate uh, novel types of uh, microelectronic devices and high-frequency devices that explicitly use quantum effects. So, Andrea, what do we know about the demand driving a quantum engineering tertiary covering? Oh, we know quite a bit, and in fact, the timing of this launch was uh, was very fortunate because we launched it about a month after CSIRO um, announced a very well-researched, very thorough investigation on the future of uh, quantum, the quantum technology industry in Australia. So CSIRO expects that by 2040, there will be 16,000 new jobs in Australia alone, and for Say new jobs, I mean jobs that don't exist right now in industry that, that don't, don't even exist right now. And so when you think about it, 16,000 may not sound like a lot, but actually I can guarantee you there are not 16,000 people in the country who would be able to take up this job. So we need to start right now to, to train this, uh, this pipeline of, of qualified quantum engineers. So, Andre, when you speak about the potential 16,000 new jobs, do we have a sense of explicitly what sorts of jobs the graduates of this degree might be undertaking? Yes, yes. So uh, there's a variety of things. Quantum, uh, quantum engineering is quite a broad discipline. So um, the expectation is that about half of those jobs in the long term will be in actual quantum computing, be it in the you know, development and, and fabrication of you know, quantum computing hardware, or be it in quantum computing software, so actually you know, being programmers for quantum computers, or uh, being um, end users. For example, there is a lot of uh, demand for quantum uh, computing power in finance, in medicine, in pharmaceutics. So already now, most of the major banks have a number of people in their, um, in their firms, in their technology offices that are looking at how to program quantum computers to, for example, optimize investment portfolios. And then about the other half will be in things like quantum sensors. These things already exist, in fact. There's, a, there's an estimate that about a billion dollar worth of iron ore has been dug out of the ground in Australia that would otherwise not have been found, but has been found thanks to some quantum sensors. And then there is quantum communications, which is an um, extremely secure way to transmit uh, encrypted digital data. And again, this is already existing, but it's expected to, uh, to boom and to expand a lot in the next decades. This is an undergraduate course. So do high schools know about all of these things? Like, have, Are there any like 17 and 18-year-olds being like, 
yeah, quantum computing and and billions of iron ore dollars. Like, you know, what sort of messaging or or approach is is being done in high schools for a new concept like this? Well, so we, uh, since we launched the, the, the degree, we have been, uh, of course, in touch with, um, you know, the career uh, coordinators in high schools, make sure they know about this. But the reality is high school students nowadays are some of the most informed and aware people on the planet. So they know perfectly well, uh, at least the ones who have an inclination towards these things, they know perfectly well what quantum technologies are. And so, in fact, they, they are well aware of, um, of what... Uh, what the possibilities will be, and uh, we are getting a lot of interest from, in fact, or even outside Australia, for people who are interested in uh, joining our program. Amazing, of course, of course, they're all over <laughs> it. Andrea, if if you were a um, a completing high school student this year and then thinking of applying for this degree, what sort of skills might come in handy trying trying to um, to excel in this space? Well, this has the same entry requirements as the standard electrical engineering degree. I mean, all of the quantum, specific quantum technologies and skills will be taught to the students at the university. It's funny that I, I often get this question from students who want to uh, participate in quantum technology. What should I prepare for? So, don't just come and join us. We will teach you what you need to know. All you need to do is to work hard, do your physics, do your maths, and even do your English. You know, because you'll have to be able to write and and and, and speak properly when you present your results somewhere. Just get really top HSC marks, and then come and join us, and we will teach you everything you need to know. Oh, we love to hear that because we think STEM communication is so important. Oh, absolutely. So you, you touched on the fact that quantum engineering is not just a capability of the future and uh, that lots of it is around us already. Um, you've mentioned things like microelectronics and high-frequency communication and some of the secure communications there. But let's just take microelectronics for an example. What sort of things exist in that space that people might not recognise as quantum engineering products? Well, some, uh, hopefully, they already recognize. Uh, anyone who has been shopping for a new television in the last couple of years, and especially if I had a bit of a budget so they could go for the, for the top-of-the-range models, they probably would have been uh, sold a QLED TV, where Q stands for quantum dots. So yeah. already now you can buy a TV that has quantum dots in the, in the um, basically it's just in front of the array of LEDs that are in the back. And those quantum dots are there to give very stable, very bright colors. So if you go to the shops, you will see, if you put them side by side to a sort of base TV, the, the colors are a lot more vivid in a QLED TV. This thing already exists. You can buy it in the shops. Oh and then gosh. at the level of uh, yeah, at the level of microelectronics more broadly, I mean every computer and mobile phone that you use contains a silicon microchip that is made out of billions of transistors, and those transistors commonly have a size of about uh, 100 atoms from end to end. And so even though, you know, when you program a normal computer, you don't need to know about quantum mechanics, the hardware underneath actually is uh, based upon 
um, quantum properties of you know electrons that flow in the transition in the transistor you wouldn't otherwise be able to understand how it works let alone develop it to the to the level of miniaturization it is at right now so if everything already has quantum then what about the normal engineering? Like, <laughs> will, will the previous degree be um, taken over? Um, well, look, so the, the there's several layers to the quantum technologies, right? So, for example, even, even as a, let's say you're a computer programmer right now, right? Most software engineers don't actually know how the microscopic hardware of the computers they use for their daily work actually works. So, you know, technology is very complex. <laughs> it's and funny you use that example because right? a couple of us are actually developers and we're like, that's yep, right. that's correct. That's <laughs> right, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. You know, you don't have to know everything. But so, you know, there's still plenty of space for engineers to work at a somewhat higher level who just, not just, but, you know, who actually apply and, and find, uh, you know, uses and novel, novel um, you know, applications for, for engineering products. The quantum engineering is essentially, the quantum engineer is a person who really works down at the bottom of the, at the bottom of the pyramid, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. But what I really want to point out is that we still give all the traditional, you know, engineering skills to our quantum engineering students. So uh, we, the students need not be concerned that they will sign up to a degree that is too narrow. I fully expect that who gets a quantum engineering degree will be able to access all the jobs that a traditional electrical engineer will be able to access as well. That's very reassuring. I love that. Yeah. So, Andrea, the first undergraduate intake is set for term three this year. That's Does right, Uni New weeks. South Wales have three or four terms? Like, when, when would that be? Um, so, so UNSW, we have a trimesters, um, trimester system. So we start allowing the first students to kind of flow into the quantum engineering right now. And then uh, from, uh, from trimester one, 2021, we will start to take uh, the first year students to start as quantum engineers from day one. And then we'll take it from there. Amazing. We have been speaking to Scientia Professor Andrea Morello from the Uni of New South Wales. If you want to find out more about the quantum engineering course, check out the University of New South Wales engineering website at www.engineering.unsw.edu.au. Thanks so much for your time this evening, Andrea. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're with Bite Into It with Mays, Dan and Vanessa. The consumer data right is a general right created for consumers to control their data, including who can have it and who can use it. In Australia, open banking is the first part of the consumer data right. It's to form a single customer-driven data sharing framework across the Australian economy. It appears that we may have had a bit of an issue with uh, Vanessa on the Skype there. We are, we are uh, going to speak now to uh, Anson Parker, who is the co-founder and head of product at UpBank. Anson, thank you very much for joining us on this very interesting uh, tech issue. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. It's kind of par for the course these days, tech issues, so very used to them. 
Absolutely it is. Uh, uh, Vanessa, you're there. So um, I was sort of halfway through my intro and trying to explain that up. You were one of the first of a wave of what we call neobanks, a type of direct bank that operates exclusively online without traditional physical branch networks. And um, you launched in Australia in October 2018 and have already amassed a massive amount of customers. Uh, so it's great to have you, Anson, to, to talk with us practically about the new consumer data right and open banking. Um, so, Maze, did you did you have a yeah, question? Yeah, I was. Well? You know, it's. I'm a little bit new to it, but what open banking makes me think of as a developer is like, so what can we all make our own open source banks now, or or is that what cryptocurrency is? <laughs> what what is that about? Um, yeah, well, I think that uh, you know. The interesting thing about UP is that we're in the banking space, but we all really came out of the software world. Um, and in the software world, you know, the online space, the internet, like giving giving other developers access through an API to to the data you have on customers and allowing them to sort of build apps and enhancements uh, on, yeah. on the platform that you've created, it's just kind of what you do, right? Like that's kind of a – it's sort of almost um, – seen as just a necessary thing for a, for a startup, but you kind of have seen that with Twitter and Facebook and Google. All of the, those companies in their early days used this API mechanism to understand kind of what was possible with their platform and what would resonate with customers. Um, and, yeah, but in, in the banking space, I guess, you know, you don't have that same kind of software-driven mindset, that technology kind of uh, that idea. So, it, you know, that, it hasn't. It never really happened in the banking space. Banks are just kind of too big and and slow and and maybe nervous to get into into APIs without there being like this open banking, essentially this mandate from the government saying you have to do this, right? Like this is too important and fundamental for to have customers' data locked up um, just just in your sort of uh, stores. You need to sort of let this data free. And so that was kind of, I guess, how open banking uh, has come about in a few different countries. Um, but you know, up. Up is uh, sort of, you know, like you said, not even two years old yet, um, and we're sort of uh, we're absolutely big supporters of open banking for all those kind of reasons. But but actually, what we've done is sort of go to market before we have an open banking implementation with sort of our own API, much more in the style of sort of a tech a tech company. Um, yeah. And where that differs, you know, it's sort of aligned, I think, to open banking and and aspiration. But where it differs is that like. Customers uh, of UP can actually build apps themselves that connect directly to UP, and that's something and that open banking. So what doesn't sort of ideas have have come out of that already? Have you had like a hackathon or something, or is there <laughs> some other ideas I mean, that you're thinking about? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I think what you know, one of the brilliant things about it is that you don't really know what people are going to do with it. So. Um, uh, and or even if people will do anything with it. So, you know, we've been really amazed at how quickly people have sort of immediately jumped on it and started building, building you know, cool ideas. And so some of those things are like, um, you know, an app that would send you a notification if your balance dropped below a certain point. And they called that down, which is kind of cute, right? Like, um, <laughs> or, you know, lots of apps that are like about, you know, people wanting to find different ways to understand their spending or or move, you know, export their transactions into like a Google spreadsheet or, um, you know, someone built like a jukebox where you can like send them a payment with the name of a song and it will start playing through their stereo. So just kind <gasps> Cute, of crazy. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Are there any new challenges that have come up for you with this now or is it very empowering for you? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's generally uh, just been an amazing experience, amazing learning experience, and seeing the enthusiasm out there for it. Um, I guess the the stage that we're in is almost the opposite of open banking. So open banking right now, um, you know, you have to be sort of what's called an accredited data recipient to be able to connect to a bank and access this data on behalf of users. So you have this kind of very high bar of sort of and qualification process to go through to even be allowed to sort of play in the space. Um, so if you're just a, you know, like a hacker on your own and you want to do something cool like we're seeing you know, on our side of events, it's almost impossible to get that um, accreditation to do that through open banking if you want to sort of connect to someone's big four bank account to build some of these ideas. You really have to be a company with sort of documented processes and dispute resolution uh, processes, insurance and all these kind of ideas. So it's sort of closed off, I guess, to smaller developers and sort of early stage startups, at least at the moment. But we're up's the opposite. We've made it very easy for sort of, uh, you know, those garage hackers and, and individuals to connect to that data. But, but in terms of companies connecting to up to build stuff, um, that's where we are sort of, you know, we, we don't really have those things in places. So, of course, we have lots of companies that want to, to connect to up and build um, build amazing apps on top of that for for our customers, but you know that's the part that we're sort of building out over time. So I guess that's that's probably the challenge. I guess is just the like how do you manage all of that enthusiasm where people just want everything today, um, but you kind of have a you know it's, you can't do everything at once. Anton, Vanessa here. I'm trying again. Um, it's so exciting that you've got this new API and that people are already doing lots of fun, creative things with it. But I wonder, you know, in the finance section, there's a lot to do with, you know, social equity and how you can think about protecting people's money and, and helping them be, you know, responsible with it and helping them protect it and, you know, different sorts of savings things and protecting their um their, their credit ratings and that sort of stuff. Have you seen many um, explorations of, of helping people with their finances from that point of view? Um, I mean, I think it's early days for our, for our API, but that's certainly a theme, I think, is, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, where, where banks maybe haven't delivered to customers has, has been that understanding piece, like ha- actually helping people sort of put, put all the pieces, make like draw a picture from all of that incredible data that you have that help people, you know, understand where their money is going. And, like, our view is that it's not really – we don't need to sort of rush to judgment. Like, we don't need to say, like, you're spending too much on, you know, shoes or uh, fast food. We just need to, like, actually help people understand as a starting point where that money goes um, and stay engaged with their finances. You know, like, these days when you're just tapping a card or a mobile phone to pay for stuff, uh, it's very easy to sort of uh, disengage from from that sort of – that that spending and how, and how it adds up over time. So, like, where, where we're really focused is just giving people the information, the understanding, so that they can make decisions with that information. And that's, to be honest, I think that's typically where a lot of the integrations go to. It's giving people really interesting and compelling ways to understand, like, their money. And if they want to sort of start implementing budgets and, and, and uh, controlling spending on categories, like, they can do that, but that's kind of their choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess beyond up, you know, when you think of your brick and mortar banks, what's what's the promise of the consumer data right for, for them and, and how will how might it change um, the the experience for their banking customers? Well I think, you know, like the I you know, it, it's it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think you know, at, at some level, it, it, um, as much as they are sort of data providers or data holders, so they have 
lots of data. There's also lots of other data out there. So, it's, you know, I think one of the use cases for this is to make it sort of easier to switch banks. So one of, you know, in Australia and probably most countries, very few people switch banks. You know, it's not sort of a high switching type of area. Like, I think it's something like 5% of people might switch a bank. Uh, one, you know, every year. Well, they so get you early, don't they, that... with their dollar mites? <laughs> well, exactly, because <laughs> it is sticky. And, and and one of the reasons for that is because all your data is sitting there. So all your bills are coming out of your certain accounts. It just feels like it's going to be a really big pain to move away. Mm. Uh, so I think open banking, you know, one of the great use cases is to sort of take all of that data with you when you do move away. Um, and so I think, you know, any bank... You know, can benefit from that. If, if the only reason a bank is retaining customers is, is because it's hard to move away, then I think they'll suffer, right? But but if, if a bank is sort of backing themselves and saying, we've got something really great for customers, and if we can make it easier for customers to switch to us, then we'll get more customers, then it's a benefit to them. Hey, Anson, I'm wondering, you know, with, with some of the, the free-flowing of this data, despite the fact that it's super, you know, private, what is the potential to, to maybe mash up some banking data with other sorts of data sets that we have about, say, the Australian population? Is, is, there, much, is there much potential you see there with mashing up data sets? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think that absolutely that's, that's one of the great, um, great potentials of having this this uh, open banking sort of consumer data right come into force here is that we can we can start to explore those ideas uh, and you know like that's that you know I guess an application of that in some ways might be like you know a, a, a fintech lender that wants to understand you know your lifestyle better to, you know like it's not it's not just purely about sort of money in and money out they want to understand well how do you spend that money and what's your life what does your lifestyle look like and that might involve you know mashing up their banking data with their uh, I don't know, Strava you know, activity or, or some other data source out there for sure. Nice. I'd love that. You could suddenly start tracking all of the mammals and their favourite coffee places as they come through the suburbs. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it would be brilliant. <laughs> you could plan where to put your next coffee shop based on that sort of data. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that, that, to that point, I mean, like banks do a lot. They do a lot today with data, and but it's just not – it's just not really known, right? So, so you know, companies like like big chains like a McDonald's will buy data off banks to understand like where customers are spending, what are those postcodes, like what's that postcode that has all of this this new money that's that's is spent on takeaway food that you know that they can use that to plan um, where to put their next uh, outlet. So you know, like this data has actually been used for probably for decades. Um, behind the scenes, you know, in a lot of cases, it's just that now is an opportunity to actually bring this to the to the fore and actually put put you know make that customer's choice to share that data as well. Which I think is pretty key. So, Anson, if you've got a final bit of advice for for uh, your regular banking consumers about what they should be looking for in this moment of change in the banking industry, um, what would you say to them? I mean, I think you know. Uh, I guess I would say have patience. This will be a sort of a slow process in some ways. We're kind of seeing that already with, you know, open banking launched now. I guess it's on January 1st, right? Oh, sorry, July 1st. So almost two months ago, there's only two accredited data recipients that I know of so far. But the, the interesting thing is that, you know, like there's this quote from uh, this science fiction author, William Gibson, who says that, you know, like the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. That's kind of the yeah. case with the open banking. It's like... Nipson, amazing. Yeah, yeah. There are apps in Australia that have been around for years that, are, that enable you to do the sorts of things that open banking will enable. Like there's 
pocketbook and you need a budget type budgeting apps. There's a like probably everyone's heard of Poly Payments, which you can buy like a you know when we could fly, you can buy like a, you can pay for your Jetstar flight through Poly Payments. These these uh, companies all use this technology called screen scraping, right? Where you basically give them your banking username and password, and they log into your bank pretending they're you to to do something on your behalf. Like so, that like that's open banking is in some ways just a much safer kind of more regulated mm. way to do that stuff. That's already happening today, and like millions of Australians are kind of engaging with those services. Um, so I think that part of it will just be making that stuff safer. But hopefully we can just sort of foster, I think, innovation. To me, that's the really exciting kind of element of this, is that if we can allow for one and two person, little small startups that have an amazing idea to be able to access this data that has been closed off to them until now, then, you know, I think that's what's really exciting. So, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Anson, you have helped uh, bring some clarity to what can be a very dense topic. Thanks so much for that. If listeners would like to uh, hear a bit more from Anson, well worth finding his article on open banking in The Australian on the 3rd of August, um, just a little earlier this month. Uh, one of the more reasonable things you'll read from that publication. Anson Parker from UpBank, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. We wanted to have a chat about some extra significant news this week and I'm very excited because ABC has revamped iView and they've launched a fully refreshed and rebuilt app for smart TVs. Now, it's super difficult to keep up with the smart TV market. As we heard from uh, Professor Andrea earlier, that, uh, you know, QLED TVs actually have quantum... <laughs> in them, which I had no idea because who can afford a television that good? But, um, but what's great to see is that the ABC has been trying to keep up with all the different devices people might have and make sure that people can still get to watch things on demand, you know, self-schedule their viewing, and uh, they've done all sorts of things. They're talking about adaptive video streaming, so you get better performance um, over slower network connections. And um, they're also doing really clever things about cross-device syncing. So you know how you watch something on your iPad and then you're like, all right, I'm going to go watch the next episode over on my television and it's not really sure where I'm up to. Well, now with iView, you should be able to do that a lot better. It's super exciting. Um, sadly. It is exciting. I think like um, – for someone who watches a lot of iView, the, <laughs> the definition and stuff is every now and then a little bit lackluster and like their last huge update of just on the browser-based um, on the computer was really nice, how it finally tracks everything. And then, yeah, looking at it's not even just smart TVs. It's also coming soon to PlayStation and Xbox, which a lot of people also have. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, along with SBS, if we're going to put it in that mm. sort of category, mm. um, SBS's updates have also been really good and it's just, yeah, finally. And I think for anyone yeah. living in lockdown at the moment, you know, if they've got kids, that ABC Kids sort of streams are so helpful um, mm -hmm. and educational. I know that they're, all the young kids I know are addicted to Bluey. Uh, so, and parents. So, yeah. Well, I think the parents, if they're anything like me, are more addicted to ABC News. Uh, it's that 24 cycle of, yeah. oh, am I in the mood to, to catch more news at the moment or not? Absolutely. Listening yeah. to or seeing Dan at, at 11 and... <laughs> 
Yep. It's like the it's like another sort of Sims I find ABC twenty four is like I know where you are, I know what you're all doing. Anyway, it's a little bit creepy, but <laughs> Yeah, the, the only uncertain is what jacket channel. is he wearing. Yeah. Yes, true, true. Hey, so there's another article I thought we should discuss while you're with us, Maze, in particular, mm-hmm. because you are mm-hmm. one of our resident game experts. Um, Apple has confirmed that it's going to block cloud streaming game services, including Google Stadia and, X- and Microsoft's xCloud from iOS. What yeah. do you think about this? Uh, again, like it's just like earlier is just all of these corporations are just arguing for our money and really, you know, how much does it really affect us? Like, <laughs> uh, well, be I mean, this is the same, I guess, as, as the article we've been talking about for a few weeks with um, Apple getting on the wrong side of a whole lot of app developers yeah. who, if they want to include purchasing ability inside the, um, the app store, Apple wants 30%. You know, and and app developers are saying this might be fine when you had a whole lot of IP tied into creating this service from scratch and you're the only game in town. But nowadays, we feel like we're not getting a lot of service for that 30% slice. It's pretty hefty. Especially with, you know, how big a library it is. And, you know, from the game developer's perspective, like Steam also takes 30%. And there is also a lot of conversation going around about, like, well, what does Steam really give us? They don't really give us any marketing. They barely give us very much support. And it's a similar thing with Apple. I mean, I guess Apple Arcade is the exception. But even then the way that money is actually being paid through to developers has been uh, interesting, to say the least. It, it feels like everything um, everything old media is new again and is old again, you know? Like this is a conversation we've had between the people who own the, the distribution channels and then the, the product makers yeah. for as long as this stuff's happened. Yeah. Um, but there doesn't yeah. seem to be a very clear lot of balance of power at the moment Um there's there's no real customer benefits to Apple's decisions if they lock people out of their platforms. Um, so then that starts creating weird dynamics between the customers and and, uh, and Apple. Um, mm. It's incentive for some people to switch to Android if they feel strongly enough about those products. Yeah, if they just want access to anything that they can have. I mean, you know, part of Apple's rhetoric around this also is that they don't want any company to be streaming to them, which, you know, you could see as like a part of their their messaging around how they're being more secure and, you know, they're similar to Fortnite is like they can't curate that audience or those, those players and they can't sort of bring that security. So is is this going to mean that iPhone devices are still more attractive to parents to buy for their kids? Um, you know, a, a lot of that security is still bullshit because it just means that Apple is the people who is who are owning that um, instead of any, anyone else. But yeah, I think also when it comes to streaming games, you know, it's really it is accessible for someone to be able to stream a, an amazing AAA game just on their phone. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's amazing that phones can handle that these days. That is absolutely incredible what we can do. Well, that's it, to stream it instead of having um, the rendering happening on your phone, right? Like we all, we don't all need the latest NVIDIA graphics card anymore. 
I do wonder um, to what extent some of these things are just uh, Apple being obsessed with consistency at the moment. Uh, there's a little article kicking around which affects the Chinese region because Apple's removed 15,000 games from the App Store in China for not meeting local licensing requirements. Mm -hmm. That's kind of interesting, right? So who knew games um, require a valid publishing number, an ISBN, which is the International Standard Book Number, from China's National Press and Publication Administration, which handles approvals for games in China. So there you go. Games are treated wow. like books in China. And it turns out Android has been requiring this from games in their marketplace for um, a long time, but the App Store was just sort of ignoring it. And uh, mm. now they've been forced to crack down. So that's an interesting sort of move there. A lot of friction with um, things coming out of the Chinese market at the moment. Yeah, hey, we'll sure. leave it there for that because we're certainly not experts in that space. Um, events this week. So, yeah, um, Games Talk. Maze, did you want to tell us a little bit about this? Oh, well, this has been um, a series. I think the maybe second one happened just this Monday um, of Games Talks uh, hosted by RMIT and Acme. So you can go to the Acme website um, to find them. And they've been predominantly Melbourne games developers. Um, so I think it opened with Untitled Goose Game. There's a couple of developers from them um, Monday before and then and uh, last Monday was from Necro Brewster as well. Um, and then next Monday coming up, um, we have Paulina Sammy from the creative director of Dragon Bear Studios, so a passionate advocate of accessibility and diverse representation across the industry. And I know that their game um, has uh, has a lot of Indigenous ties as well, so it's got a lot of um, Australian, uh, yeah, stories, which has been something that's really brought them to the forefront of, of the Melbourne scene, yeah. Awesome. That sounds great. Well, yeah. we want to say a big thank you to our guests this evening, Scientia Professor Andrea Morello and Anson Parker from UpBank. And I'd like to personally thank our hosts, Dan Salmon, all the heavy lifting this evening, and Maze Wallen. Thank you so much. Thank Talks you. producer Elizabeth McCarthy always helps us out. We've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening for our Radiothon special. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.